Breitbart News Daily. Thanks for being here. It's Big Debate Day and Trump on Tucker Day. So this is our official, I, th- I think I'm only going to do this one time. I, 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 there's an argument that we I could make this argument every debate, but I don't know how many more debates there will even be. <laughs> this may be the last of the debates, but we only need to make it once and we can just keep this in our back pocket as we proceed forward together in this process. Here's... <laughs> We had some great phone calls in the 8 o'clock hour yesterday. The question was, make your best case as to why Trump should debate tonight. Because I couldn't come up with a good reason. We, we know why, you know, it, it'd be fun or whatever. Like, we're all, we're all there. But I think we all get, if you're 60 points up, you know, right? So I couldn't come up with a reason why he should debate. I don't think anyone's, well, I'm sure some people are, but I don't think many people are mad at Trump for not debating. I think we all get it. But some people who were Trump supporters, a bunch of people who were Trump supporters called in and said, no, no, here's why he should. and made their best case, and it was really good. Uh, If I remember, I think there are four main ones. I'm probably missing a few. The four main ones. uh, One is uh, he could get up there and let all the people who betrayed him really have it. Let him have it. Hey, uh, Hey, Mikey. Remember that time when I said we got to put tariffs on China and you said no, and I did it anyway, and I was right and you were wrong? Remember that, Pence? <laughs> Remember all the times? And he could just like list off, hey, sloppy Chris. Remember that time when I asked you to find a good FBI director and you suggested Christopher Ray? Remember that, bub? And he could just go down the line, and that would be a lot of fun. Uh, second reason why he should. Because all the guns from all the other candidates are going to be focused on him, which will continue to make him look like the the outsider. And that served him very well in 2016. He's the outsider. The one who's really looking out for you. And look at all these other rhinos who are not looking out for you. They're attacking you. Well, they're attacking me, but they're really attacking you through me. And that can really increase that status the the best thing if trump if trump did go to the debate I mean, he's not but if he did go to the debate the best thing for the other candidates to do would be to ignore him <laughs> treat him like doug burgum <laughs> right like give him that much attention like he's just some random guy here like oh, okay this guy donald i don't know just make him one of the one of the peons somehow but they wouldn't be able to resist they would they would attack him they would attack him like he's the front runner by 50 points and that would just make them look big and make them look small. So, uh, but Trump could do, Trump. That's one reason why Trump could do it. Right, increase that outsider look. Uh, another reason why people said Trump should debate is it's just just ended. Now, listen, some people think it's over already, so it should just be ended. But just do the knockout blow. Be done with it already. You know what? What are we? What's what are we doing? What's what's this rigmarole for? Why are we why are we having Ace Hutchinson do with anything? <laughs> so Trump just gets up there, delivers the knockout blow. We end the charade. Everyone's money dries up, and they just everyone just supports Trump. So you can do that. 
And then fourth thing, if if he can uh Well, there's some people who are still on the fence, right? They're they're on DeSantis or Vivek. They like Trump, but ready to move on kind of thing, right? But if Trump could do a good job up there, maybe he could, uh, his polls go up another 10%. He could pick off some of those DeSantis and Vivek supporters and then really, I guess, hit that that blow. Because if DeSantis' polls go from 12%, which is somewhat sustainable, down to 6%, that's not... That's not going to work. So if Trump could do that tonight, then that would uh, end a lot of those other campaigns. So there you go. So those are good reasons. I didn't think of those, but we had some great calls. And I'm sure there were a couple others too, but he's not. And that's probably the right play <laughs> is to not, right? Do the interview with Tucker. You're going to get a hundred times the audience compared to a debate full of losers. Right, that's how they'll frame it. And then it doesn't matter because you'll just he'll just go to Atlanta on Thursday morning and get arrested and it'll be as if the debate never even happened. <laughs> right? Like the, like the news will just move right on to that anyway and that's it. So great calls yesterday. You can go back to the podcast, listen to the whole thing because uh, it was fun. Let me make the case here as to why I'll just, I'll do this once. I was thinking I could do this before every debate, but I don't know how many more debates there'll be first of all, but I don't need to make it before every debate. Let's just do it. We'll do it one time before debate season. I find these TV debates to be insulting. And that's, again, I did not know this. I wasn't in on this one, but this immigration questionnaire on Breitbart.com is perfect. This is, this is what I'm talking about. How much better that is than these debates. Let me explain. Neil Postman was a brilliant man. Neil Postman. Read everything by Neil Postman. Passed away in 2003. Wrote a lot of books. The one relevant here is called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business. I think he wrote it in 1987. Amusing Ourselves to Death. And the argument is that it is impossible to express real ideas on television because television is about images, not words. So you're forced to reduce serious topics into entertainment and amusement. That's the argument. These debates are designed to amuse, not to inform. I I mentioned this briefly the other day and someone wrote in and said, yes, later you should call it the debate show. I like that a lot. It's the debate show. It's a TV show. It's a silly TV show. He says, where we used to have serious and rational public conversation, we are instead left with what he calls a vaudeville act, a show. A little bit, we talked about this a little bit yesterday in this hour, I think, with Jordan Peterson saying uh, it's a performance for politicians, not just the debate, but politicians put on this performance. When in reality, people don't want a performance. It's all politics is entertainment and spectacle, but we don't want that. We don't want politicians actor. We want statesman. We want leader. I think people are really craving a moral leader, but we want, we want something more than performer. But that's what 
politics is now. So let me play this. This is Neil Postman. This is an interview in, uh, uh, again, 1988. So that uh, when television <clears throat> does news, when um, it tries to do what uh, Americans now call political debates, <clears throat> this cannot be taken seriously um, by uh, an informed public. I mean, what is a debate? Uh, we have uh, President Reagan and Vice President <clears throat> Mondale in front of the camera. <clears throat> Someone like Barbara Walters says, first question for you, Mr. President, is what do you think uh, is the solution to the problem in the Middle East? You will have two minutes to answer, after which Vice President Mondale will have 60 seconds for rebuttal. Now, who can take that seriously? If Reagan and Mondale <clears throat> were serious men, in fact, they would turn to Miss Walters and say, what kind of men do you think we are? We're running for the highest office in the land. You can't answer a question like this in two minutes, nor can you rebut someone else's answer in 60 seconds. Or they might turn to Miss Walters and say, what kind of people do you think the American public is? That they will put up with a forum in which candidates for the presidency are asked to respond to a question like this in two minutes and or one minute. But in fact, none of that ever happens. Reagan does answer, and Mondale does give his rebuttal, and everyone goes on with this charade that television is informing the public. In fact, television, I would argue, is not. It's amusing the public, and that this is not a, a legitimate form of political discourse, but is taken right from uh, the values of show business. Neil Postman, the book is Amusing Ourselves to Death. I love that line. When will the American people stand up and say, what kind of men do you think we are? What kind of, what, kind of, what is this? What, what are you presenting us? What kind of slop are you presenting us? It's like when you, uh, it's like a school cafeteria. And they, just, they give you this, it's like pig slop. You're like, what do you, what do you, what do you think I am? What, what kind of person do you think I am? This, you can't, this isn't food. We get presented these debates. We're like, what, what do you, like this should insult us. Television amuses the public. It doesn't inform. So this has been the case for decades. I mean, he said that in 1988. I think we're, we're just more advanced down that line. And the effect of this is that Americans know of many things, but know about very little. And his claim is that Americans are the most ill-informed people in the Western world. Now it's hard to compare. I don't know how, I don't know what, like if, if I, British people are way more, Spaniards are more, like I don't know about that, but it is true that we are not well-informed about things. So the example he gave, because this was during the Iran hostage crisis, the Iran, or the Iran hostage crisis just ended. He said every day for over a year, Iran was on the news. So if there were any subject that you think Americans would know about, it would be Iran. It was on the news for a year. So Postman asked hundreds of people very simple questions. Where is Iran? What religion do they practice? Where did the Shah come from? What does Ayatollah mean? 
questions like that. And he said, most people knew nothing. They knew nothing. They've heard of these things. They knew of them, but they didn't know about them. And that's a perfect example of how TV is to amuse, not to inform. You can watch something for a year and not be informed. And this is what the debates are. The reason it doesn't work, the reason TV is not a good medium for communication of serious ideas is because serious ideas are expressed through language. And TV is not about language, it's about image. Now let me go back in time. We'll do a little uh, comparison to us back in time. The colonial period. He says that colonial Americans, so late 1600s, early 1700s, he says, our, like us, our great-grandfather, or our founding great-grandfathers, were as committed to the printed word as any group of people who have ever lived. What do you think the literacy rate was back in 1700? The literacy rate for adult men was 89 to 95%. He said that's quite possibly the highest concentration of literate males to be found anywhere in the world. 89 to 95%. The literacy rate for women was 62% in colonial America. For comparison, the literacy rate in England for men was never above 40. So men in England, in the, like, let's say we'll go, we'll go 40. 40% of men in England were literate. In America, 95%. 40% of men were literate in England. In America, women, 62%. We were an extremely literate people. 400 years ago. You ready for the fact of today? What, what percentage of Americans do you think are literate today? 79%. Now, you're saying, oh, that's actually higher than I thought. 79%. Okay, well, let, let's say it is 79%. We've gone, down, we've gone down. We went from 95% to 79%. How is that possible? 79% of American adults are literate? In, this, in 1700 America, we were more literate, but it's actually worse than that because literate's a pretty low bar. Only 54% of American adults can read at a sixth grade reading level. That's 130 million Americans cannot read at a sixth grade level. For comparison's sake, most newspapers write at an 11th grade level. USA Today, which is known for it's easy reading is a 10th grade reading level. That means that a vast majority of Americans cannot read the newspaper, which means they cannot participate in a society that expresses ideas. I I think this could be the biggest problem that most people can't even fathom that, that Americans can't read. We live in a country where people can't read. When in colonial times, everyone could read. Last week or two weeks ago, we quoted Federalist 65. It took me 10 times to read it so that I could translate it. Translate. It was, it's written in English. I needed to translate it for me. Not so that I could dumb it down for you. I didn't know what it was saying. I just knew because Alan Dershowitz mentioned it. He's like, oh, yeah, the Alexander Hamilton talked about it in the Federalist Papers. And I was like, oh, I wonder what Federalist Paper. And I found it was Federalist 65, and I read it. I was like, I don't know what that was. I, don't, I, don't. I had to translate it. It was written in a newspaper in 1787. All the Federalist Papers were written in newspapers. 
And there were no letters to the editor saying, man, that was, uh, can you dumb it down for me? I don't understand. Thomas Paine's Common Sense, published in 1776, sold 100,000 copies in two months. A best-selling book today sells 10,000. That's a bestseller. To be considered a bestseller, you have to sell 10,000 copies. Thomas Paine's Common Sense sold 100,000, and half, oh, way more than half of Americans couldn't even read it today. Couldn't even read the words. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will in this crisis shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands by and now deserves the love and thanks of men and women. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. Yet we have the consolation with us that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods. And it may be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. Most Americans can't read that. Come on. And there's no... Like no, like no one talks like this. <laughs> because and no one write, like no candidates can write like this. Even when candidates write... It's written like they talk because we're just completely focused on TV and on 30-second memorized hits on Trump. Chris Christie's going to do this routine. Like, I can't wait to see it tonight. Just as like an like anthropologist, like to watch Chris Christie do his anti-Trump routine. He is rearing and ready to go. He knows exactly how it's going to go. No, well, I guess there's a skill. I was going to say there's no skill. There's a skill in memorizing it, surely. But... It's all pre-rehearsed. It's all pre-packaged. It's a TV show. It's a, it's a, it's, a, it's almost, a, it's a scripted out TV show. <laughs> That's what it is tonight. They're not there to listen or think or be quick on their, well, no, even quick on their feet. There's no thought to what's going on tonight. Here's Neil. The point all this is leading to is that from its beginning until well into the 19th century, America was dominated by the printed word and an oratory based on the printed word as any society we know of. We're more focused on the printed word than any society that we know of. And today half of Americans can't read and we're stuck with TV debates. Let me give you an example. One more example of how things are uh, digressing or degressing. The Iliad was written as a poem to recite. It wasn't written. The Iliad wasn't written. There was nothing to write it down with. The Iliad takes 15 hours to read out loud. 15 hours. So it was recited. People remembered the 15-hour-long poem. That's what the human mind is capable of. The human mind is capable of remembering a poem that takes 15 hours to, <laughs> to recite. Whoa. This is Karl Marx. This is the, maybe the first time I've ever quoted Karl Marx in a positive way. He said, is the Iliad possible when the printing press and even printing machines exist? It is not inevitable that with the emergence of the press, the singing and the telling of the muse cease. That is, the conditions necessary for epic poetry disappear. Back then, epic poetry, as you recite, it was the only way to do it. 
And then we digressed into writing, and now we digressed into TV debates. We used to have statesmen who spoke. We used to have statesmen who spoke. I'll never forget when Barack Obama came on the scene in 2008, people called him the greatest orator ever. So were you kidding me? He's okay at reading the teleprompter. He's okay at it. Not even good at reading the teleprompter. And he's our great orator. We used to have statesmen who spoke. And then we had statesmen who wrote. And now we have politicians who perform. One last thing, we'll take a break. Because I, I didn't articulate this well. You'll, tonight, and on TV, I don't just want to focus on tonight, just on TV, something you never see is anyone thinking. No one ever thinks. Watch this. Someone will ask a question. Someone will watch cable news or whatever. Someone will ask a question, and the person will answer immediately. Immediately. That's why I, I caught myself a second ago when I said uh, these people aren't even smart enough to think on their feet. And that's true. But that implies that there's, there's like, a, like, like the quicker you can think, the better. And also the louder and more confident you are, the better. But that, that's the performance part. If someone can ask you a question and you can answer immediately and loudly, that's how we view how smart you are. But you never see anyone think. There's never a TV program where someone asks a question and the person says, you know, um, let's think about that for a minute. It's really interesting. Oh, so you see, so you asked if this happens, then okay, well, huh. okay, interesting. Okay, well, okay, what? Right, you never hear anyone do that. <laughs> you never, you never watch on TV anyone sitting in silence and thinking, because thinking is not valued, and thinking's not. A performance art like that's that's, a, that's and politics is performance today so anyway that's my rant and that's the last time i'll do it i'll watch the debate tonight i look forward to it we'll play the game we'll talk about it tomorrow and also i'm sure trump's conversation with tucker which is already recorded i'm sure it'll be very interesting and we'll talk about it i think tucker understands all of what i just said and i i'm certain that Tucker feels liberated by getting off of TV and just onto Twitter where now he can do whatever he wants. Because Tucker, Tucker changed the format a bit anyway when he was on the TV. Very, very long monologues. But now he's totally liberated. And I know he loves it. So maybe we're moving into a new era now of how things can be presented. And I think we must be because like podcasts can be four hours long. So I think we're moving into something different than just the TV scene. And I think that's good. And the debates are just hanging on to relevancy. And I don't, I don't think they will for long. So I look forward to Tucker's, Tucker and Trump tonight. Listen, I feel liberation being on Sirius XM. We can do whatever we want. <laughs> My boss said, we don't believe in formats. That's what, that's what he told me. We don't believe in formats. That's amazing. So let's use that freedom for good. I'm excited about that. So we'll talk about the debate. We'll play the highlights. And my goal is to use moments that happen as springboards for deeper and more important conversation.
Matt Boyle, who's the Breitbart News Washington Bureau Chief. We talked about on Breitbart.com, they have the survey of uh, immigration to all the candidates. And this is a perfect example of what we just talked about in that last segment, that the TV debate is meant to amuse, not inform. And Breitbart.com, the intent is to inform on issues that actually matter, not E. Jean Carroll. <laughs> and if E. Jean Carroll's name comes up tonight, I'm throwing the TV out the window. E. Jean Carroll. Uh, anyway, it's on Breitbart.com. And then we talked to Stephen Moore, former Trump economic advisor, of course, and talked about how China's bad economy affects us and just stuff about Trump and, and his meetings with Trump and some great policy on uh, corporate income taxes if we want to bring American companies back. There's a great article on Breitbart.com about Masterlock. Masterlock's a company in Milwaukee for 102 years. They had a manufacturing plant with 400 jobs and they're moving it to Mexico. I hope that comes up tonight as well. That story's on Breitbart.com. I haven't seen that anywhere else. Uh, but we want to play the interview here with Francis Martel. I just love talking to her because I could throw anything at her. This, this is going to be my new game. See what random things. Uh, Francis, could you tell me about the leading political parties in uh, in uh, Belarus? <laughs> Whatever. She'd be like, oh, yeah. Well, the it's like, huh, how do you know all the things? So we talked to her here about China and China's accusation that we have infiltrated their government. And then we get into some of the BRICS nations latest as well. Enjoy. Francis, how are you? Doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you. So let's start with that first point, uh, what we heard about a couple weeks ago about China infiltrating malware on our computers. What do you know about that, the extent, et cetera? Well, I mean, we know that China is the leader in several sort of international bad actors. Um, North Korea is actually extremely prolific at this, um, where they're very, really good at hacking. They're really good at um, putting spyware and, and malware on um, computers abroad, and, and it's both, you know, government computers and it's things like, you know, the second you download TikTok, for example, your phone is compromised. Um, so regular, you know, normal American humans are also having this issue where um, the Chinese government probably has access to your phone if you downloaded TikTok because TikTok is a Chinese company and the, the Chinese law demands that Chinese companies work with the military whenever necessary. Um, so it's very pervasive. Um, at the same time, you know, you were talking about, you know, when China invades Taiwan, when China does all these things, um, China's very compromised in this, in two senses. One, uh, like you were saying, the economy is extremely weak because of mismanagement during COVID and because it's a communist country, so it's naturally parasitic. It, it doesn't produce anything. Um, and the other thing is they, they have a serious uh, problem with people. Um, they don't have enough people. Uh, their, their child, they don't have enough childbearing women, and the few that they have don't want to have kids. Um, millennial Chinese are completely disillusioned by the future that is in front of them, and they are not starting families. And nothing that the Chinese government has done um, has succeeded in convincing um, you know, younger Chinese people to have children. And so that's going to be a big problem in 20 years. Um, and if they don't have the manpower, they can't really you know, execute on um, the, the plans that they have set if they are going to go to war with us or with Taiwan or with anybody else. That's amazing. Now, we have that same problem, I would argue. Yes, to a lesser extent, because we didn't kill off all our baby girls in the, in the 80s. Yes, that would, that, uh, would, yes. that would definitely have a more drastic effect than uh, the malaise that occurs here. But uh, it's a problem in a lot of places. Um, okay, so that's something. What? Tell me about your story, and then we'll put all these things together. 
Sure. Um, so this is really interesting. Um, the Chinese Ministry of State Security, which is um, their big, you know, sort of police FBI kind of agency, um, has started accusing the United States of infiltrating government agencies in China through the CIA. And they put out two different cases that they alleged happened, both of individuals who were Chinese citizens, students. And when they were students, they met CIA agents who befriended them and eventually convinced them to sign deals where they would get jobs with the Chinese government, they would get security clearance, and then they would share that intelligence with the CIA for money. Um, and both of the stories are very similar, where they're warning the Chinese public essentially not to befriend Americans because you don't know when they're going to turn out to be CIA agents. Um, so there's a lot of paranoia that they're seeding in society right now. Okay. Now, and I want to get more detail on that, but we just arrested two spies of theirs, or maybe spies not maybe the right word, but two Americans. I know one of them just became an American citizen that was in the Navy, and we accused them of selling secrets to, to China. So, first of all, what like what do you know about that? Is that true? I don't because I don't know what to believe anymore, right? I don't know what our government says is true, and I don't know like well, China says something is true. So how much of this is just a tit for tat on what happened here, right? So so let's start with here. Like, wh what do you know about the Chinese people who infiltrated our navy? Well, it's a little bit different because it's um, you know it's in, in these cases, I believe the people who were um, arrested who are being accused of working with the Chinese government are Chinese Americans. You know, they started out kind of with ties to um, the offending country in this case, if true. On the other side, um, what the CIA is saying is that um, CIA or what the Chinese government is saying is that CIA agents corrupted just normal Chinese students who had no ties to the United States. And just went to one one case. It was someone who studied abroad in Japan and befriended uh, an American that was identified as Ted. That's all we know about him. Um, and that that friendship turned into a CIA asset. Um, so that's kind of the difference between the two cases. Is that it's not someone you know. It wasn't a Chinese American that we uh, flipped to to work with our intelligence the way that um, it was a these cases were allegedly Chinese Americans that the Chinese government flipped. Um, the other detail yes. is that we have a lot of cases of um, the Chinese using these big, very transparent programs that, that are not secret um, to get academics to steal intellectual property and give it to China. Um, there's a big program called the Thousand Talents Program, where nominally the idea is to get the best minds in China and the United States to cooperate on science. But in reality, the Thousand Talents program essentially um, generates spies within American academia that then steal, um, you know, important scientific data and then give it to the Chinese government. We don't have anything. The Chinese are not accusing us of anything that pervasive. They're essentially accusing the CIA of making friends with Chinese people. <laughs> Is it true? Are their claims true? That's a good question. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't doubt it. Um, I, I think there's a lot of, especially, like I said, there's a lot of disillusion among millennial Chinese. Mm -hmm. um, so it could be a Jack Teixeira kind of situation. Um, Jack Teixeira was the uh, the um, military guy who was arrested for allegedly sharing 
these like incredible security documents on Discord, which is a video game app, um, a few months ago. It could be something like that where you have disillusioned millennial Chinese who befriend Americans and then, you know, they have no loyalty to the Communist Party. The Communist Party has destroyed all their hopes and dreams. You know, there's clearly an opening there for the CIA. So I think it's true. Um, but I do think that the evidence presented by the Chinese government is very flimsy. Um, so just because it's believable doesn't mean that we have anything concrete that we could say, you know, this definitely happened. Why would China announce that we did this? It's a good question. I think it's to complicate relations with, with Biden. I think they think that um, if they accuse Biden of bad behavior, you know, Democrat foreign policy is all about what do like elite white countries think of America? That's the only thing that matters. Like as long as France and Germany think that we're nice, then no other foreign policy matters, right? So um, if the Chinese see this and they think maybe that if they can accuse the CIA of dirty work and they can tarnish our reputation with you know, Western Europe, which is again, like Democrats do not care about the opinion of anyone in any other country except for France and Germany, which is why we're spending billions in Ukraine, um, then maybe they can get Biden to a negotiating table where they can say, you know, you heard us. The CIA heard us by infiltrating our government agencies. Why don't you lift some tariffs? You know, why don't you um, expand our access to, you know, your scientific community? Um, so I think they think this is a bargaining chip. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, okay, so if, you know, I asked you, is this true? Potentially, maybe, right? Uh, is this good? Is, is this should we as American citizens sit here and, and hear this and be like, good? I'm glad we're trying to flip Chinese people. This is this is what we should be doing. That was definitely my attitude. You know, like as as a Cuban, the CIA failed to assassinate my dictator like 15 times with a cigar, <laughs> have no success rate. So hearing that the CIA successfully did anything at this point, I think um, is positive. But the one thing that gives me pause is exactly what gave you pause, which is why is China advertising this? Why are they loudly proclaiming that their intelligence has failed? Um, and that makes me mm. think that they don't think it's necessarily that bad for them um, or that yes. they think that they can freeze CIA activities by trying to embarrass the agency. So um, I want to believe that it's good because I think we absolutely should be infiltrating every enemy government and, you know, and trying to take down every communist regime if that is in fact what we're doing. Um, but I, I am very hesitant to start cheering immediately because China's the one saying this and they, they wouldn't put it out there if they didn't think they could benefit from it. The BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, uh, dictator Xi, head of China, just visited South Africa. There was a whole big thing, and you posted uh, on Breitbart.com videos of their meeting and then the whole charade down there. Uh, tell us what the importance of BRICS is, why we need to know about it, and why is China visiting South Africa? Did I say South Africa or did I say something else? I meant to say South Africa if I didn't. Why, why, is, why is the president of China in South Africa? I think you said South Africa. You're good. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, BRICS is, <laughs> BRICS is really important um, because it's an attempt to create a parallel world order from post-World War II. You know, America and Western Europe are the dominant powers. Um, and they're trying to do this economically and they're trying to do this politically. Um, this meeting, this BRICS summit, um, this month, it's going to end on Thursday. Um, so it's going to go a couple of days. 
The reason it's so important is because the focus of this is going to be a debate over whether they're going to expand membership. Um, BRICS is five countries right now, but they invited something like 40 world leaders to this summit to basically audition to, do you want to be part of our clique? Do you want to sit at our lunch table? Um, and the, the scariest thing about this is that countries like Saudi Arabia and UAE, which um, under Trump were pretty reliable allies of the United States, um, you know, they were uh, improving their relationships with Israel. They were um, helping us fight, you know, uh, terrorism, fighting the Islamic State. Um, now under Biden, they're considering joining BRICS. So, um, and there's other countries too, like Argentina, um, and I, and comically Venezuela wants to join. I don't think they'll get in. Um, <laughs> but there are all these countries that have good relationships with the United States, had great relationships under Trump, and because they see how weak the Biden administration is, they're considering joining BRICS, which is essentially, you know, uh, bolstering up China and Russia. Um, India's there too. India's a pretty good ally of the United States, um, but they certainly um, are all about Indian supremacy right now. Um, the BJP government just wants India to be the dominant superpower on the planet. So they're not exactly a reliable U.S. ally. Really? Um, but uh, they're there too. You know? Oh, that's interesting. Let's chat about India for a second. So India's always mm -hmm. fascinated me, just everything about it. It's, it just seems like the craziest place. So they're the most populous country in the world right? Uh, I don't know what their mm -hmm. birth rate is, but I'm assuming it's going up. I can look. High. Up yeah. Yeah. You're right. So <laughs> they're high, on the yeah. ascent, but still very poor. And I've always had this impression, just an ignorant impression that India is a country that's just kind of there. <laughs> they're just kind of doing their own thing and they're just there. So this idea of Indian supremacy is like, Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. We got to look out for that now. And then, with with what worldview, with what ideas, with what intentions would an Indian supremacist movement of the world look like? So just give us the give us the lowdown on that. What does that mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, Narendra Modi, the, the prime minister, is part of this political party called the BJP, which is um, it's a Hindu nationalist party. Essentially, they believe that. Every Indian, every person who belongs to an Indian ethnic group should be Hindu. Um, they believe that Hindu values should dominate Indian politics and culture. Um, and they're very, um, th they really want to see India be on the same level as the United States and be above China. Um, so that has made the Indian government very um, adversarial towards China, which makes the BRICS very interesting, right? Because um, when BRICS was founded, India was just kind of trying to um, harness the power of having this huge population and this huge economy, while also, you know, so many people there are poor. It's not fully developed. Um, now it's developed a lot higher. Um, so the way this translates into politics uh, and, and policy is that Modi is investing heavily in undermining the Chinese economy and undermining Chinese and the political influence. Um, so on the first thing, he's got this uh, program called Make in India, where he's going to companies like Apple and Foxconn and, um, you know, all these big tech companies and urging them to move all their factories out of China to India. And it's a zero-sum game. Like, <laughs> all of these places manufacture in China – they manufacture using Uyghur slaves, um, and the Indian government comes up to them and says, you know, how would you like 
manufacturing the way that you do in China without having to worry about COVID lockdowns or the communists just suddenly mm-hmm. deciding that, you know, you're making too much profit and we have to cut you down to size. Um, and that policy has worked to a certain extent. Um, I think Apple has definitely considered, you know, moving a couple of factories out of China. Um, but they they want to be the dom- dominant manufacturing power and that they want to reduce Chinese influence, particularly territorially. Um, China regularly tries to invade India and slice off pieces of, of India. They call There's a piece of India they call South Tibet, and, and they, they just claim that that's China. Um, and obviously that doesn't go well with the Indians. Um, so they've had multiple military battles on that border. Um, and India is very, very interested in getting China out of there and getting China out of the South China Sea where they've illegally taken pieces of the Philippines, pieces of Vietnam, and, you know, the greater, the more they expand um, west, the closer they're going to get to India. So you would think we would be really good friends with India. (laughs) Yes, but historically, we've been really good friends with Pakistan, and the Soviet Union has been really good friends with India, and that has really complicated this whole China situation. Whoa, what's what's preventing us now from us and India having a good relation? Are are our worldviews so different, or our interests so different that we can't get a, a proper allyship there, or what? Um, well, it's two things. One is that historically the Soviet Union has armed the mil- the Indian military, whereas we've armed the Pakistanis, and so they're very um, uncomfortable with that. Um, and and the other thing is. Um, the human rights situation in India is just a disaster because yes. part of Hindu nationalism, like I said, is that you're not allowed to be any other religion. So you have waves of horrendous violence where Hindu mobs will go into churches and lynch the priest there and, and you know, go into Christian communities, burn down every Christian home, burn down every Christian business. Um, most recently, this happened in Manipur, which is um, near Myanmar in the north. Um, where you just you have these Hindu mobs just killing everybody that they, they think is Christian. They attack Muslims too, um, and the government doesn't do anything about it because they kind of agree that, that there shouldn't be people of other religions there. Um, so that makes it really hard to have a conversation with the Indian government of you know we share the same values. Um, but Biden tried it. Um, Modi came to the White House in June. A journalist asked Modi, you know, what about all this religious repression <laughs> under your government? And Modi, next to Biden, you know, on national TV, completely denied that this was happening. Just said there's no religious persecution in India, which was a bold-faced lie. Um, So that human rights aspect makes it really complicated because then Russia can come in and say, you know, we don't care about who you kill within your own country. You know, here's some weapons. Shut up about Ukraine. (laughs) So that makes the conversation a lot more difficult. Well, and they have their caste system, of course, which is antithetical to everything we yes. say we hold dear here in America. Uh, all right, last question on this. Um, let's go back to South, South Africa. What does South Africa bring to the table? So if, if China and Russia, it makes sense why they would team up. China and India, it makes sense why they are in relations because they're next to each other, right? So like, they're kind of like have to be in ways. Uh, what does mm. South Africa bring to the table? Well, South Africa was actually the last member of BRICS. It used to be just BRIC. Um, so they came in later, um, but they are one of the most influential economies on that continent. They have really close relations to, you know, a lot of 
uh, places kind of in the, the global south, what they call, right? Like they, they're representatives of the global south, and they have a really big Indian immigrant population. Um, so they have sort of a, a good manufacturing base, um, and they represent a part of the world that was not represented in BRICS before. Um, the problem with South Africa is that it is one of the most poorly governed countries in the world. They barely have electricity because the socialists just, you know, ran every engineer out of the country. Um, so they're, um, they bring a lot of challenge, but they're also, you know, they have a lot of manpower. Um, they have an economy that has a lot of workers. Um, and that can definitely help, especially when you have a country like China that's on this birth rate, you know, precipice where they, they're not going to have people. Um, so it's important to have countries like South Africa and like Brazil and like India that do have big populations because Russia and China, no one's reproducing there. And then Brazil, do they also bring just the geographic benefits? If, because I, exactly. I, I played the game Risk before. So I just, there's got to be some geographic <laughs> benefit there. Is there anything else that Brazil brings to their table? Um, yeah, I mean, Brazil has tremendous natural resources, probably uh, more than all of them except for Russia, because, you know, Russia has all this oil. But Brazil has, you know, the Amazon, which is gigantic and has tremendous mineral resources, tremendous, um, you know, untapped uh, potential. And so they bring that to the table. And they also bring the fact that Brazil is probably the friendliest country to the United States in BRICS, um, or it definitely was under Bolsonaro, now with Lula, a little less so, but it's not adversarial. And, and I think it, um, the Brazilian government has always traditionally liked to serve as a bridge government between um, rival factions. That's why, you know, Brazil always speaks first at the UN Security Council because it was considered the most neutral and friendliest to everyone, you know, the miscongeniality country. So that's, really? that's the tradition at the UN. Yeah, Brazil is always the first speaker um, at the Security Council because they get along with everybody. Um, no so that's way. what they bring to the table. Now, what a fun trivia fact that is! Because when you said that, I was like, I was like, well, maybe that's just because they're they they're first alphabetically. But it's like, well, that's definitely not true. <laughs> like, there are a lot of countries <laughs> that have A's in them too. Wow, that is something. I did not know that about Brazil. Yeah, Pretty that cool. was post World War Two, um, and and it's always. You know, when Bolsonaro was in charge, um, it was always fun for me because I'd have to cover it and be like, you know, first thing in the morning, we're going to get this barn burner from, you know, this hard yeah. right leader wow. <laughs> to start okay. off the day. All right. Great stuff. Francis Martel, Breitbart News World Editor. Thank you, Francis. Thank you so much. Keep have a great day. Keep up the wonderful work. Jeez, how does Francis know all the stuff? Like, that's unbelievable. 866, I feel like I could pepper her with anything. <laughs> She's like, oh, well, the... the this political party in India, I'm like, huh? I'm American made. I got American parts. I got American well, of course, we will be watching the debate and watching the Trump interview with Tucker as well. Which one will you watch first? Tomorrow, Alex Marlowe will be here to debrief it all for us. Right part news daily.